Hi, welcome to the Working On It podcast. This is Antonio Pavlovich. In this week's episode, I've spoken to Alberto Escavillas. Alberto is a former colleague and a hugely well-respected property professional. He's truly knowledgeable. He's also a fellow runner and a good friend. We spoke about how Alberto got to his current role. We also discussed mixed use and the future of that. And we, of course, talked about COVID-19 and the effects on customer behavior. So without further ado, here is the episode with Alberto Esquivias. Thank you, Alberto. Thank you. Thanks for do- doing this. Uh, I appreciate it. My pleasure. Um, is it, you, you said the extended family is all right. Everybody's, every, everyone is in Spain right now, right? So um, my wife's family, we're all in the same town now. So us, ah. her brother and her mom and dad, we're not in the same house. We're in three different houses, her mom and dad in one, us in another one, her brother in another one. Uh, we didn't want to, uh, you know, we don't want to bring the virus into mom and dad's house. Yeah. Uh, just in case they're the older ones and they have a few health issues separately. So. So that it's all fine. And then in terms of my family, my mom and dad are in Madrid, but I've got one brother in London, one brother uh, in Holland. Ah, so, who? Um, oh, I never realized that. Well, the the one in London is, is doesn't live far from you. He lives in Battersea. Oh, okay. So um, you, you know Battersea Park, Albert Bridge yes. Road? You know Albert Bridge? Yes. So the, the street that continues that bridge is Halber Bridge Road, and just before it finishes, um, a block before it finishes, that's where my elder brother oh, lives. Okay. And my younger brother lives in um, uh, I don't know the name of the of the town in Holland, but it's very close to um, uh, Eindhoven. Eindhoven. Not, okay. Not far from Eindhoven. Yes. Okay. Yes, he works for John Deere, you know the the tractor company. And, ah. Um, okay. And I don't know, they have a factory in, a, in another town close to Eindhoven. So you, you and I met when we were both working on the extension in Westfield, London. Can you summarize your sort of professional history, what that looks like? From what I remember, I know that you, you lived in Belgium, um, but I've never, I don't actually know how you ended up being in Belgium. Okay, well, I, I lived in Belgium before my professional life. Oh right. I, um, I when when I was little, I think at the age of eleven, we as a family we moved to Belgium. My father, at the time, was in the military, and he he took a position in in NATO, in Brussels. Right. Um, this right. is this is in the eighties. This is when Spain had just joined and was joining all the institutions. Uh, the European Union, NATO, and all of those things. So it was quite an exceptional thing to do at the time for a Spanish family and for a military uh, Spanish family. We went to Belgium. We lived there for five years, and then we came back to to Spain, to Madrid, where where I am from. And then in Madrid, I finished my school years, last two years at the French Lycée, um, ah, and then yeah. I studied I studied engineering uh, in. Um, in Itai, which is one of the uh, universities, private universities in, in Spain. And then, and then after that, I started work. I started working in Madrid, working for El Corte Inglés Group, which you may have heard of, the yeah, group. 
uh, I did work for their, um, it, it was an industrial company within the group, which specialized 90% of its activity, 80% of its activity was the production of um, kitchens, kitchen furniture ah, for right. homes. Um, and it was, I think still is the biggest producer of kitchen furniture in Spain. And then they had another division, which was about 15 to 20% of their um, business, which was the production of commercial furniture. So when you walk into a department store or into a store, the racking, the, um, the, the piece of furniture where the, where the computer sits, um, all of those things were produced mm. by, by these guys. So they used to do all the, all the dressing up of the store fit out, both for themselves, for the Corte Inglés group, and also for, for third-party companies. And, right. um, and I joined them because they wanted, they had an issue with the refrigeration installations. There was only one company in Spain that was providing a turnkey solution for them where they could buy the equipment, the, 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 the freezers, the machines, the whole installations, quite technical installations. So they wanted to break that monopoly. Um, basically to, to, to save cost. So we set that up uh, with um, Electrolux. We got the furniture and then we did all the engineering, design, construction, procurement, and maintenance. But I, I was there for a year, during which we the pricing went down by 45%, basically, of those installations. For oh, wow. the glass. So I guess we, we managed to, 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 uh, to achieve the objective. And then I moved on to, to Jacobs Engineering in Spain. They, um, they had a big group which did project and construction management. And I joined them and I started doing basically servicing most of their international clients. Because I spoke languages, because I spoke English, I spoke French, and I was um, quite happy to travel around. I basically ended up with the French clients or the American clients or the international project. So I, for example, spent a year um, on a project uh, which was in Buenos Aires. So I spent two weeks in Madrid, one week in Buenos Aires, two weeks in Madrid, one week in Buenos Aires for a, for a whole year, hmm. which sounds very nice, but actually after some time, you, you don't even know which season of the year you're in. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I can um, imagine. And, and, and the air miles thing wasn't as developed back then, so I didn't really get too much of a reward for, for all that time. <laughs> um, there you go. I, I did that. That was actually quite interesting, quite exciting, because I had to do a lot of things without, um, without really them being in place uh, in the project or in the client organization. So there was a lot of learning so things could happen. So it's so very entrepreneurial also. Um, and to be fair, the food in, in Buenos Aires is amazing. <laughs> and the pasta is fantastic. So I really enjoyed that piece. Um, after that, after Jacobs Engineering, what happened is Len Lease were um, developing a shopping center in Spain. So they, um, they offered me to join their development group in Spain, which I did. And again, uh, a change to a very... Uh, entrepreneurial situation where a big multinational which had successfully developed Blue Water in the UK was looking at replicating um, that success in Spain and they had been to that date managing most of it with the 
UK and Australian staff, uh, but they clearly knew that at that point of the project, which was about to start construction six to 12 months after I joined, they needed to have local local knowledge, local input. So I joined with a few other Spaniards and we developed Trejauas, we did we did quite a few things. We um, we did the development management for Telefonica's headquarters in Madrid um, and a few other things before um, I I came to the UK with Lendish in 2000. Right. And I started working in 2004 in the UK, but I, I moved uh, in January, February 2005 to London. And what, was that linked to another project, the, the fact that you moved to London or...? So it was linked to two things. Firstly, Lendlist had decided a year earlier, a year and a half earlier, to, to stop investing equity in retail development in Europe, so uh, in the continent. So although we managed to successfully have development management business in Spain with Telefonica and a couple of other things, over the long term, um, the business or development list was was going to be limited in in the continent. So um, they they basically offered for me to come and and join the UK group where that activity was still ongoing. And um, at the beginning, there was no specific project to which I could be coming. So I I, I agreed to stay in Spain to service basically the sale of our share. In Tresauas to um, to Metro Acesa, to a third party and manage all of that, and also to finish the Telefonica contract and to do a few other things. And then uh, the time the time came when there were a few other projects coming coming um, in the pipeline for Lendlist in the UK, and I came to to do that basically to work on those projects. Um, came to the UK, I then. Um, worked on those projects, one in Edinburgh, one in Eastbourne, um, Blue Water, and a few other things. And I also did an MBA at the same time in, in London, at London Business School, which I finished in 2007. And then in 2008, um, and a lot of people have asked me about the timing, um, because of the crisis, in 2008, I yes. moved to, to GPT, GPT, another Australian RIT, which was at the time building a pan-European shopping center fund, and I joined them to lead their um, the development side of things, asset and development management side of things. Um, as it happened with the crisis, um, the fund uh, wasn't put in place, as many others, and the activities that GPT had in Europe had to be worn down progressively, which I basically did most of that. And what was left of it, we uh, was acquired in due course by Internos Global Investors, which I joined to. And um, and I basically there, we were servicing a lot of uh, properties, funds, and mandates that were distressed for quite a few years. I think a lot of people in our industry did that. But it was, for me, it was quite an interesting time because I moved from um, development management into asset and investment management and even even uh, negotiating with the banks and the services and the bondholders for that like that it was really uh, another very formative time um, and setting up I remember in 20 
2012, 2013, um, investing into Spain by, we bought um, British lands operations in, in Europe, which were based in Madrid and Luxembourg. And a lot of people at the time were thinking, why are you doing that in the middle of the crisis? But actually that went quite well as the crisis, um, as the crisis went past and the up, the upwards curve was picked up quite well by that day. So that was quite an interesting um, piece of work there. And then I moved to, to Westfield. Westfield called, offered to um, to go back into development, which I, I I was surprised at because normally when you've left the development practice for five years, as I had back then, and done pro, um, asset and investment management, it's very unlikely that a developer would take you back. But Westfield at the time was very eager to have people with different backgrounds and understandings uh, to join them. And, um, and that's what I did. I joined Westfield to do new business across Europe. And in the six and a half years that I've been there, I've failed to do that because I haven't managed to successfully um, <laughs> source a project. That said, uh, we were acquired by Univad Rodampo, which were basically the ones competing with us on all the projects. So every project that I worked on that's finally gone ahead um, is now in our group. So you could say that somehow I did manage to get that. <laughs> yeah, that is, that, that is hilarious. Because they, I can imagine, if I remember correctly, Westfield was looking at only the big cities in Europe. So I would say that wherever, as you say, wherever you went, Unibai Rudamko was there as well. Absolutely, absolutely. And um, yes, we, we, when I was doing new business with Westfield, um, it, was, it was, yes, it was only Madrid, Barcelona, you know, Milan, we already had the project of Rome, Paris, and in every single location, um, there was Unibai Rudamko doing the, the best to avoid us getting a project. In all of those locations, Unibai Rudamko would have a presence. Um, so I, we looked at projects in Vienna, Brussels, Hamburg, Madrid, Barcelona. So all of them, Paris, all of them, Unibal Rodanko had a strong presence. So obviously they were trying to avoid us coming in. Um, but look, that, that was only about 20% a third of what I did in the last few years with Westfield until two years ago, I was basically doing um, first phase two of Westfield London, as you mentioned earlier, uh, delivering that and then taking charge of all the developments um, around Westfield Stratford City, uh, right. which includes an office building, which we're about to hand over to HMRC, yep. um, a hotel, um, YHA hostel, another office building, a retail extension. So Westfield Stratford City is very interesting. Uh, project or or, um, or scheme because it's made up of a lot a lot of elements, different elements, different users, different components, which is really how um, how Westfield Univald Radamco is looking at things. How do you create city centres? And I've always, having worked in the retail industry for quite some time, retail real estate industry for quite some time, I've, I don't especially like shopping centres, but I do like city centers, centers where you have layer upon layer upon layer of different activities, of different uses, of different things happening. And I think Westfield, Stratford City is probably the best example of that being delivered in the last in the last 10 years. 
Interesting thing about what you said, like layer upon layer of different functions. When the first shopping center was actually developed back in the 50s in uh, in the States, that was exactly the idea of, of recreating a city center. The person who actually did that is a it's an Austrian architect who started with this, with this idea of creating shopping centers for for multiple reasons. Actually, he was he was solving a problem because a lot of, uh, many Americans had moved away from city centers um, to go to live in the suburbs, and all the retail stayed in um, in the city centers. So he, um, this architect, he whose name I can't remember now for the life of me. Victor Gruen, actually, yes, thank you. He uh, he recreated he created the shopping center, which was in his mind. He wanted to have the inner city of Vienna back in the back in the day in America. Interesting thing happened is that from uh, ever since the fifties, we've actually removed all of those functions away, stripped all of those city functions away, and focused as an industry quite a lot on the commercial side of things about you know just selling things and it's only in the last maybe last 10 years that we actually started talking about you know mixed use and adding new functions and that's something that has accelerated over the last last few years of course but it's an interesting progression whereas as this shopping center product back in the 50s was it i mean Victor Gruen actually wanted to have a bomb shelter in the uh, next to libraries and hospitals and schools and everything else, and he wanted to have a bomb shelter in there because it was the fifties. And we've stripped, obviously, stripped the bomb shelter away, but stripped everything away. And now, when I say now, I mean last last few years, we have, as an industry, we're looking at recreating the inner city back to uh, um, into this product that, well, in the fifties already had it as an idea. How did that happen? I mean, why is it, do you think that was mainly driven by commerce, mainly driven by, you know, making money uh, it, as an industry? Or how how did we lose all these these functions that we're trying to bring back again? Generally I, speaking, I mean. Yes, no, I think um, I'm not a, a historian of architecture and urban planning, but I do think that urban planning has pushed um, a lot of these consequences. So when you when you look at most European countries, you still have an urban planning system where you take the land in whatever original use, and then you allocate plots of land to different users. You're basically separating the uses and you're deciding which piece of the land would be retail, which piece of the land would be offices, which piece of the land would be residential, and which piece of the land will be school, et cetera, et cetera. And then you put roads around that, basically. And it's all very car-centric, um, very car infrastructure-centric in terms of how urban planning works still in most of, in most of Europe. So that that's one of the uh, reasons why it's been why it's been pushed. Hmm. On the other hand, you also have uh, companies to specialize in different activities. So if you um, if you are a retail group and you want to expand, you try and and do retail expansion. So a lot of the 
of the uh, supermarket, hypermarket expansion across across continental Europe since the 70s, 80s was they were the ones that developed the retail infrastructure outside of the city centers. So they were specialized in retail and yes. they had a, a urban planning system that basically allocated one use to a piece of land. So that use was clearly going to be retail because that's what they want. Mm. Um, so I think there's been that combination of things and the development of of cars, the massification of car in, in our society has pushed that even further. I think those are the big macro trends. I don't think it was a conscious push from business to, to um, just just do it like that, but it's a combination of things. Right. Because the segregation of users in the land in the urban planning, it's more of an architectural movement and planning movement than it is a business move. And um, has, that, has that changed? Uh, yes. I think if you look at the UK, the UK um, has been pushing at least for 20 years. I've been living there for 15 and, and it certainly started before I was there. been pushing to reduce the out-of-town shopping centre development and encourage shopping retail development to happen in the city centres as a tool for urban regeneration. And you could say Stratford City has done that, and there's many other examples, Liverpool One, and many other examples in the UK that have happened in the last 15, 20 years. Hmm. Clearly, this is a very, you know, it's a process that takes a lot of time. You need to assemble land, you need to do a lot of planning work, etc., and, and it takes time. I think the UK, is, uh, the other thing that the UK has been doing for quite a few years is trying to reduce the, the car infrastructure development, trying to reduce the impact of car in, in what we do and, and limit the amount of money that is spent on car infrastructure. Um, whereas other countries still have a planning system, a planning design system that is centered around getting cars as quickly as you can everywhere. Um, and, um, and the UK is not really on that. I think that the Dutch have a very different approach to urban planning also and to car designing around cars. I think slowly it's happening and right now there's a very strong push again, some of it pushed by other trends, macro trends to reduce the car dependency um, of all the economies and of, and of all of the um, urban designs. And you can see things like that happening in, in Milan, in France, in Paris, in many other cities. So I think progressively it is changing, but it takes a long time. It takes a long time. It's, it's almost a generational thing. Yeah, but you meant, just mentioned Milan, and I realized that uh, there was another step in your professional history that uh, you haven't touched upon. That's actually the move to go and commute to Milan every week. Yes, so I, since uh, June 18th, so nearly two years ago now, I have been in charge of our operations in Italy and our operations in Italy are a very big retail development, retail center development in, in Milan, very close to Linate, very close to the airport. And um, I have been leading those operations for the last 18 months. I, the plan was to move to Milan earlier than I have. I'm still commuting from London. Um, but for personal reasons, uh, that has been quite difficult. So uh, it's been commuting for uh, nearly 18 months at the moment, yes. 
But you just earlier you mentioned uh, two thousand and eight. You know the whole crisis and uh, the the uh, British land portfolio that you did that you helped acquire in Spain and everything else. As you say, you know it was probably in in some people's minds a, a, a difficult, well, not a best time to go out and buy things, but. Of course, from from pricing point of view, I would say there was a well. I have no, absolutely no experience with buying properties, but you know, prices tend to go down in crisis. That's that's what one thing that I know. And we are clearly, and I can't avoid not talking about the current situation that we're all in with the COVID nineteen uh, crisis. What do you? I mean, we. There is a lot of talk in the industry with the people, especially with the people that I've been talking to uh, around Europe, really. There are many different, well, everyone is actually thinking and, and talking about what this crisis will mean for the business. Uh, one side of things is clearly the, cost, the customer behavior that I would say the, the real estate, well, the, the commercial property business has had difficulties following anyway before the crisis. Um, uh, another side of things is the financing of all these businesses. And clearly that there are companies in the UK like Into and others who are really, who have been struggling before, who for whom this crisis is going to be a tremendous challenge, I think. But how do you think, I mean, do you, do you think that after this is all, all pretty much over, uh, this whole crisis is, has calmed down. Do you think there will be a sort of a consolidation in the market again, uh, or you know, would we just continue the way it was before this all started? Um, I think um, the situation is going to change a lot of things. Um, I don't know to which extent, but I do think there's, there's, there are a number of areas that will be impacted by this crisis. On the one hand, we have consumers who will change their behavior. And if if you look at just before the crisis and a lot of the arguments that European businesses used to make about why the retail Armageddon that, that hit America and the UK wasn't impacting continental Europe. One of the arguments they were making was that because the penetration of online shopping in Europe was was more delayed, was way behind that of the UK or, or America. Now, I think that was true back then, but now you have had at least a month and a half, if not longer, of people having to buy online. And that that is going to be a very powerful consumer behavior changing uh, vector. So I think I think that will accelerate the the adoption of online consumption across continental Europe, and that that will have an impact on the business we do. The other thing that will change is people will also I think at least in the short term appreciate more what they haven't had the opportunity of, of doing for the last six weeks or 10 weeks or however long the lockdown uh, lasts for. 
So I think there'll be another push to go into into experiential things, and people will appreciate social contact and those things more. So I, I, those those two trends, which seem contradictory, will 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 be reinforced in my view. And um, and I think proximity is the other one that would be reinforced too. So if you have a butcher that has been serving you well during the crisis, you will probably become or continue to be more loyal to him. So those those three trends will consolidate, and I think the impact on on the retail industry will be will be very significant and will be an acceleration of the trends that we were seeing before. That's that's on the one hand. On the other hand, the fashion industry is going to see an incredible, in my view, an incredible impact for the for 2020. It's not only about the, the, the missing trade that they will have for the first half of the year, because they haven't been opened, etc. But it's also the fact that the um, supply chain is completely disrupted. So I don't think they'll have the product for the second half of the year to adapt to consumers. And then consumers will also be in a, in a mood of spending less money. So I think that is going to make for an extremely challenging cocktail of of impacts for the retail industry in the in the 2020. I think the, the the grocery stores and the supermarkets will have a positive year. Conversely, because they will benefit from from those trends to end the lockdown. So that's the retail industry, which is the basis of of the retail real estate industry. And I think for the retail real estate industry, it becomes even more obvious that we need to provide for places where people want to live, want to show, want to enjoy themselves, want to meet their friends, want to eat, want to entertain themselves, etc. And not just places where you go in and buy a piece of uh, garment or a piece of food or a piece of this and then leave with your car again. Connectivity with public transport or, or walking would be key again, etc. So I think it's going to accelerate the trends we had. On the other hand, the investment community will be will be having great opportunities, but I think the, the supply of, of money and investor money will be a lot more selective than what it was being in the last few few years. Yeah, pretty much like what happened after two thousand and eight with the investments and everything else. I mean, even even the banks after this is all over, the banks will have quite a difficult time with their own financing. So how that will that will impact the investment in, in in properties is, of course, a, a big question mark. But from from what you were saying about <clears throat> customers, and I have uh, to fully agree, and this is just me talking about myself, like the you know the focus group of one. I have a feeling that you you mentioned uh, proximity. I have a feeling that a crisis like this one, uh, which to me personally it reminds me of a crisis that happened that unfortunately I had to witness in the 90s, is that it makes, it almost makes your world smaller. You know what I mean? It's not just from, you know, there's been a lot of talk about globalization being a problem now and all of these things, uh, even, even globalization was even mentioned as a reason for all this happening. Uh, but it, it also, to me personally, I have discovered uh, retailers around uh, where we live in London that I've never heard of. Uh, we are ordering uh, fruit and vegetables from a market, <clears throat> from a market seller that now sells their produce online. I have been ordering even beer from uh, 
from breweries that I found uh, just, I, I think I found 10 different uh, microbreweries around uh, the area where we live. So I've ordering, I'm, I've been ordering beer from them instead of going, you know, to Waitrose or somewhere, somewhere else. Out of convenience, because now they, you know, they all deliver, uh, but also out of, there's this emotional part of, of doing that, whereas you go, okay, they, they must be struggling, so why, I don't, why don't I help them out as well? So the world almost becomes smaller because, you know, you, you see your neighbors more, you, uh, it, it feels like you're all in, in this together. So that makes the world, in my opinion, makes it feel a bit smaller. I, I agree with you on 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 that, and but at the same time, there will be a an amount of <clears throat> established businesses that will go out of business because of this situation, and that will leave the room open for many new businesses to come in uh, and and fill those voids and fill those gaps in new ways that will change the way we we consume things. I think. One of the one of the things the UK has compared to the European countries is the speed at which retail businesses or retail related businesses die and and re, re, are reborn again is a lot faster. So I think we'll see a lot of new retailers which who will sell things differently, who will give you experiences differently, who will provide for different things. And that, that's quite exciting, actually, because um, it's not only about it's not only about the product and putting the product in front of people, which is what retail was about back in the 70s and the 80s. That's why this, the, the hypermarkets and the department stores developed so strongly. But it's also about the experience and bringing, bringing people together and bringing people together to experiences and things like that. And I think the, the, the beers, uh, the the microbrewers, which is a trend that's been going on for some time. It's a great example of that. And then providing some sense of authenticity and locality is also something that will be will be a trend. And I was I read a, I read an article you, you mentioned retailers earlier. I last week I've seen an article uh, on Bloomberg that said that Walmart had had reported selling um, many more tops than bottoms. <laughs> because people were, you know, not interested in buying bottoms. And which is, you know, I don't think when this is all over that people will continue just to buy, you know, tops instead of bottoms. But there is, there, there might be a sense of uh, rethinking this whole um, idea of buying things. As I, you know, what, what I meant when I said that the world becomes smaller, there might also be this effect of people realizing that having 25 different t-shirts that you can just throw away after wearing them once might not be uh, the, 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 the most interesting part of, um, um, of, of, of living, really. Uh, so that there, there might be another, next to the change that you mentioned, you know, people discovering how easy online and how convenient online can be. People also realizing that having more stuff is not necessarily uh, the, the the meaning of of enjoying yourself. Uh, so there, they, it, next to the behavior in going even more online, I think there might be another effect of this crisis where 
the fast fa fast fashion will uh, have to change something and that those things might not be uh, might not be the same again or it may might be there's just my personal wishful thinking no look things will be different how different is is a big question mark and i don't think anyone knows how different they will mm. be another trend that i think we consolidate is working from home and 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 working in different things and different interests so we we will have all been forced to work from home for a period of time we will all have become quite um quite good at using uh, zoom blue jeans webex microsoft teams all of those tools and i think once once the world resumes traveling uh, will be restricted for a period of time. So there will be a, a learning that collective we will, collectively we will have all had about working from home and working remotely, which actually saves money to the businesses, saves time and energy to people. And if you do that a certain amount of times a week, it's actually a win-win for everyone, businesses, yes. people, and for families. So I think there'll be there'll be a trend of doing more work from home, more consistently, more continuously, which then questions how are we gonna, you know, our work environment, how's that gonna be, our home environment, how's that going to be, our um, remote offices in delocalized locations, may may that the we works of this world will will they develop further in closer to where you live, and and all of those things will change. The, the The big question mark is how much and how profound. Yeah, when, when it comes to working remotely, I think you, I have to agree with you. And I'd listened to, um, listened to uh, an interview with, and I can't remember his name, with one of the managers of a company called Automatic, which uh, they, amongst other things, they own uh, the world WordPress platform, which is the biggest content management platform that most of the, I think 36% of all the websites in the world are based on. And he he actually called, because they all work uh, from different locations around the world. This whole company is actually uh, uh, distributed around the world. And he, he didn't call it working remotely. He called it a, dist a distributed workforce, which, you know, it, it sounds... Um, it, when you when you call in some some people's minds when you call something working from home it's almost like a holiday well it, at yeah. least it used to be but the way he put it was well actually we are not you know we work from where we can and we are distributed uh, around the world with different experiences in different places and everything else and that makes us like distributed computing it makes us actually stronger and more resilient which is which, yeah. well, which I thought was an interesting interesting way of looking at it. Well, I I, I agree that once you decentralize a system, then it, it if you do it well, it can be, it becomes a lot more resilient. The the question you were raising then about working from home previously being seen as um, you know having a day off or half a day off, I think that's changed dramatically. I I know my experience of the last. Um, six, seven weeks, and my colleague's experience over the last seven weeks is we've all been working probably longer and harder than than before the the lockdown because we've been um, 
doing our day job plus managing a crisis plus uh, doing all the scenario planning and looking at what's going to happen in the future and actually because everyone was working from home and those tools were being made available we have probably been seeing each other more than what we would have been interacting with each other in an office environment because we've been trying to replace the spontaneous um, unplanned interaction with people with more VCs and more VCs. And I think we've all been learning how to manage this progressively. And what we've learned is actually it becomes quite efficient. Once once everyone is on the same understanding, it becomes quite efficient. So I think in the future, working from home will be working from home. Uh, you will be saving the commute and you will be maybe taking your children to school, but then you will start at nine and you will finish at the time you should finish and you'll have a lot of VCs and you'll have a lot of work to, to, to do. And I think um, I think that's a very positive thing because companies and people becoming more flexible is a positive thing. I, I'll give you an example of, of a positive implication of this. In Italy, working from home before the crisis was quite a bureaucratic thing because you had to have it in the in the employment contract and you had to have a lot of paperwork done with the with each and every employee and hmm. um, when they decreed the, the lockdown they also decreed that people could work from home and there was no need to do basically any additional paperwork i think the italian regulators will become aware of the fact that trying to regulate so closely whether you work from home or not may not be the most positive thing to do in the future but they probably will change that going forward and make it easier for everyone to work from home in anglo-saxon countries that's that's not as that's not the sort of thing that normally happens but it's it's interesting to see that even the regulators were not aware of of how best to work from home or to make it easy for people to work from home and the, and there was and obviously the comparing the, the european countries with america is is always interesting but there was a big piece um in one of the tech um, uh, uh, news sites that i that i frequent visit visit was um was a big piece about american employees uh, actually flocking and panic buying software that allows them to uh, monitor their employees and make sure that they're actually working when they're working from home and that's such a it seems like a huge uh, knee-jerk reaction to to this change of uh, where people work from, where they're with the employees in America actually worry so much that their workforce will not be doing anything that they straight away went on to buy software that's well pretty much spies on their on their employees, which is completely crazy. Um, as Zoom, as I've I've read that well, there's been a, a well a lot of talk about Zoom being. And not so private, uh, privacy conscious. The company recording all kinds of things, putting their, um, they're using servers in China even, and all these kind of things. One of the one of the uh, functions in Zoom that I have discovered is that there is an opportunity if you host uh, a Zoom video meeting that you can, uh, the software can actually check. And I haven't tried this, but the software can actually check if the people in the video conference are paying attention, yes or no. So they're, they're figuring out all these ways of 
controlling if people are working. Uh, and it, to me, it sounds completely insane to be doing that. Because as you say, working from home makes you much more flexible, makes you happier, uh, gives you time to also interact with your family more. But also, uh, uh, many people are in, in their experience, their, their experience with working from home is that they're much more efficient and get much more work done when they're working from home than from the office. Look, I, I agree with you, but you, you don't have to go all the way to America and to um, and to, to look at those things. In in Spain, they, as you know, there's been political change, um, dramatic political change over the last few years, and, and a lot a number of elections taking place, and and the number of of unstable governments um, taking place over the last few years. So the last government that was only quite recently elected is is a combination of um, of a centre left party, mm. traditional centre left party, the Socialist Party, and a far left party, Podemos, um, which is more anti-system and, and things like that. And one of the first measures they brought on, and this was not a huge social demand as most Spanish people may tell you, they brought um, an obligation for businesses. To, to record the time of that people was working. So going back to, to the 70s and to the 80s, people will have to go into the office, and when they go into the office, swipe a card, so they register when they come in, and when they leave the office, swipe a card when they register when they come out. This is this is just, just before the crisis, literally. I think this had to be implemented in either November or January, very recently. So... That that is obviously coming from a conception of of a relationship between workers and employers, which is which is more um, you know more akin to a class system that I personally don't recognize, and to a to a class fight that I don't think is is relevant nowadays. But you can imagine that, and and when you look at it today, in a world where everyone's got to work from home, how little sense it makes. Yes, and um, and how little sense it makes, I think, for governments to try and regulate to that level of detail how the relationships between workers and employers should be. Yes, there is a role for the government to ensure that those relationships are fair and and not abusive, but trying to regulate how many, you know, whether going to have a cigarette is part of your workday or not. I mean, literally, those are the debates that you could see. <laughs> being had uh, is not the most productive use of anybody's time and resources and resources. Yeah, that seems that seems certainly now that seems completely crazy. I'm pre pretty soon they they will be regulating how often you go to the toilet and so those kind of things. Well, I think they were looking at that. They were looking at having a an allocation of how much time you could use for. I think the toilet was less the issue, but if people wanted to go for a smoke, is that working or not working? You know, if you're having lunch with your colleagues, is that working or not working? <laughs> but overcompensation, you mentioned that you, you spend a lot of, uh, uh, many hours of your time video conferencing. I think we're all uh, overcompensating as well, because we, needless to say, we are social animals. And part of work is, you know, meeting and chatting away with your colleagues about work, about personal issues, about anything really, and just seeing people. So I think we all, we are all overcompensating a little bit the fact that we are working from home uh, by 
going into video conferences after video conference after video conference. <clears throat> Which... I, I agree we are, but uh, to a great extent, we're also learning how to replace the interactions you would normally have in the office. Yes, certainly. And uh, you, you know, we talked about the change in customer consumer behavior and buying things. How has has your shopping behavior changed? How well, needless to say, it has. But how has it changed? Uh, mine hasn't changed too much, actually, because I don't do much shopping anyway. Um, you so personally I, don't, no. Exactly. My, I personally haven't changed much. <laughs> if anything, I'm shopping a little bit less at the moment. But my um, our shopping um, at home has changed in the sense that we um, went. So we, we moved to, to Spain three weeks ago, just before the lockdown in the UK. We, we moved to Spain to be close to our our families since we've moved to spain uh, and we're in a small village on the south south coast we were not served by any big supermarket in terms of online deliveries so what we're doing is we're going shopping to the local supermarket but what we're doing is instead of going every day to buy bread and whatever fresh product we we would like to buy that day we are buying twice a week on a monday or tuesday and on a friday and we're doing big, big purchases. The other discretionary shopping that we would normally do, um, going to a coffee place or buying some, you know, some clothes, etc. That's just not happening because you can't just make it happen. You can't just go out. Um, so that that's very significantly. Before we came to Spain in the UK, we were basically buying everything online from from the supermarkets. And um, again, we were doing very, very little, if any, of the discretionary spend. So that's a very significant change. Yeah, often uh, I remember a few years back, the supermarkets, when it comes, when it came to uh, retail property, supermarkets were also were always mentioned as the reason for people to go to uh, shopping centers anyway. You know, they were seen as. You know, shop uh, grocery shopping was seen as a must that you had to do physically, but that has changed very quickly, of course, because of this crisis. And when when I when you think about it, you know, grocery shopping, and I've I'm conscious I've said this said this before, but grocery shopping is actually very well. Uh, it is is something that you can do online really well because generally speaking, you always buy the same things. So I think that would be another change in how people view commercial properties where uh, grocery shopping <clears throat> actually gro online grocery shopping makes quite a lot of sense anyway to me i in alone honesty i have been buying uh doing grocery shopping online ever since i moved to london and even in the, back in the netherlands but in london we don't own a car so you know i don't feel like going to uh once a week going to a big shopping center should being a big supermarket we just buy a line and you know re refill small things locally if needed but i think there will be many people who have never done grocery shopping online who have now discovered this and will continue to do that do that before so that's probably another change in uh, in in people's behavior that will stick because people I, sorry go ahead no sorry i was interrupting but the customers generally tend to stick with behaviors that uh, or habits that make 
things easier for them. And I don't see them going back to, uh, they will only change back if something is easier again. And from my, again, from my personal experience, uh, grocery shopping online is much nicer, much, a much better experience online than it is in store. First of all, I don't have to, you know, fight with other people with their trolleys and everything else. And then to, to the choice and the way you buy things and being able to see what you bought before and just reorder again and those kind of things. I think for, um, I agree with you. There's a lot of the grocery shopping we do, which will permanent move, permanently move online. You don't need to go to supermarket to buy shampoo or you don't need to go to the supermarket to buy toilet paper, etc. So I think for those things that are very commoditized in terms of, of your experience as a consumer, you know what shampoo you want, you know how often you need it, and, and that's it, uh, you, you, will, you will buy it online. There's, there's, there is a very clear logic behind that. But then I think there are a lot of other products which are about the the experience the experience not only of going out and and being out but also the experience of touching the product smelling it feeling it or being being exposed to a product that you you, you wouldn't you you don't know what you wanted to buy so for example if you want to buy fish fresh fish which which in some countries may be less less common but if you if in, in spain and you wanted to to, to buy fish you would probably go to the supermarket or the fishmonger. Maybe you know which fish you want to buy. Maybe not, but you will get to the to the fish counter and and see what's there, see what looks fresher, and then decide what you do. I think that will continue to happen. And same thing for the bread. It's not the same thing to buy sliced pre-packed bread than it is to go into into um, into a supermarket or a shop. And, and smell it fresh and then buy it fresh and eat it fresh. So I think all the fresh and, and experience related um, purchases, like fruits and vegetables, fish, meat, etc., those things will, you will still want to go to a local supermarket or to a local fishmonger and, and buy them live, let's say. I think the more commoditized product, there's, there's a very, very high light. That the great majority of people will end up just buying. Yeah, and, and that what you're saying is, uh, I would even add that it will accelerate this uh, movement. Well, if you want to call it a movement towards authenticity and uh, buying locally that we mentioned earlier, because it, you know shampoo and all of these commoditized products, you can almost get a subscription on. As, as you were saying, you know how much you use, you know which brand you're using, you're not going to change very, very quickly. So it could also almost be a subscription. And I agree that, you know, going out and buying fish or meat or bread and it, that, that whole, the, the whole movement that certainly has been happening in the UK as well, in, the, in London, uh, will almost accelerate because you will want to, you would still want to, you will get your, I'm 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 just um, uh, thinking here, but you you might all, almost get your uh, subscription for for toilet paper in, and then you would you would go out and uh, have the experience of buying these products, uh, and like you said, also combined with other things, you know, seeing people 
meeting with people, going to have a coffee, anything else. So this whole movement towards experiential, and I don't, I don't, I don't even want to call it experiential retail because it won't be about retailing. Will be, will be around about uh, having spending and uh, some nice time with friends and family or just alone. That might even accelerate after all this, uh, because of a because, yeah, because of because of discovering, you know, mentioned beer earlier, but because people discover local producers, but also because you would want to have more, everything, all of the commoditized things will happen by themselves, and you would even have more time to go out and you know, do, the uh, the other part of exper experience shopping. By yourself, which is which will well, it'd be even better. I would say I'm rambling a bit, but yeah, just trying well, no, to think. I, I completely agree with you, and I think actually that is how life was before the car. So before yes. we all got a car, and then that allowed us to have more distance between us and either work or the city center and then allow us to get to bigger house outside of things, things like that. That's what the cities in Europe were like and, 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 and everywhere, really. And the shopping wasn't a separate activity. Shopping was, was the same thing as working because the production was happening, lo happening locally anyway. Things couldn't be shipped around the world and produced as effectively in mass production as, as they are now. And it was a social interaction and it's no surprise that the shopping of of the past were the, the, the squares, the piazza, the, the the social gathering places were the places where the markets were, where the stores were, where the shops were, and where all the social interactions and and buying and selling interactions were taking place. And this is this is going back a little bit to that. But it won't go fully to that. I think it still will continue to be more efficient to do a lot of things online and to do them differently. And people will not want to see the choices to be restricted. They will want the choices to be enhanced. Um, so people will not want um, to not have the ability to buy certain things. Um, and obviously certain things are very difficult to deliver into a city center. What they will want is to have choice to buy them in one way or the other. I think people always want more choice rather than less. Yes, and I, I think it's a very good point uh, that you just made about shopping not being a separate activity. It almost feels that for the last you know, 20, 20 years, we've made shopping into an activity, which was... As you say earlier, it was just part of life. You just go along your day, and you would need get what you needed. You wouldn't go, oh, let's you know, you wouldn't go out for whole weekend shopping. It was just part of of your daily routine, really, part of life, really. Absolutely, absolutely. Yeah. Do you still run? Are you running now? I'm running a little bit, not not um, as much as I would like for obvious reasons, and not as far away from where I am as I would like for obvious reasons too with the lockdown, but I run up and down my street um, <laughs> every couple of days. I do somewhere between three and seven kilometers going up and down the street, which is for someone who likes trail running and running in the middle of nowhere, it's, it's a mental shift, but at least right. it gives me 
a bit fitter than than I would be without it. Have you heard about this French guy who ran a full marathon on his balcony? Yes, I I, I have a friend who's tried it but not managed to. Yeah. How <laughs> far did um, he go? I think he did like seven kilometers, and then he was exhausted from all the turning around and and a bit dizzy from it. I, I think it would it would destroy. I don't know how this French person actually managed to, you know, have his knees stay um, well and whole. Because as you say, this whole turning. I, mean, I don't know how big this balcony was, but from the pictures that I've seen, that it wasn't that big. So turning around every few meters is horrible. I, I don't. I, 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 I am struggling to do three to seven kilometers on a street that is 150 meters long and actually is, is quite steep, which for me is a good thing. I don't, as you know, I, I yes. prefer to run up and down than I prefer to run on the flats. So I don't understand how someone can do that on a balcony. <laughs> but look, there's people for everything in life. I, uh, I do really miss, um, I have to say, I miss Richmond Park so much. That's, that's as you know, that's where I Spend right. most of my yeah. time running, and and it's it's amazing how being being stuck at home and not being allowed to go out and and go to those places is it affects you. I I would love to go out in the countryside and run up and down, but right now it's it's not possible. You're still going to Wimbledon Common, are you? Yes, I am. I am still running. I um, I do I do try to do three times a week. Uh, and I've discovered that I'm actually running much longer, well, further than I normally did. So last week I've done uh, two half marathons in one week. So I run, I ran on Monday, I ran half marathon, and then or even a bit more. And then on Friday I did it again. Uh, and the reason for that being, and I, you know, I stay uh, away from. Uh, where I think people would be. So I take smaller streets that are calmer calmer, and everything else. But there, I think the reason for doing that is very much linked to, to being at home all the time. Because to me personally, running has a huge um, mental effect on me. Uh, it, to me, the reason, the reason why I run, and I've been running for a while, is not just a physical part of things. Obviously, I want to be able to eat whatever I want, which I do, which I keenly do. I've been doing for a long time. But also, there, I find that uh, there is there is a big chunk of my running that is linked to my mental health. Uh, and, you know, not being able to travel, not being able to go out, I have a feeling that's that, that, that has made me run even further, just without me really realizing at first, just because I needed it mentally. I agree. I mean, physical exercise is just the impact on 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 the body and and the soul is incredible. I was a very late comer into running. I I have now been doing it for about ten years, but I only came into running properly at the age of forty. And um, for me, the benefits. Are, are just so incredible from from obviously being physically uh, more fit, uh, which is a good benefit, but also to my ability to sleep and sleep better is is been so much enhanced, which is which is amazing. And then it, it's time 
to wind down and it's time to to do things differently and to think about things differently and to and to get a completely different set of of um of of impulses going through your brain which i think are very beneficial for me running has been an amazing influence in my life in the last 10 years it's been fantastic and also socially uh, with park run and and many other things the influence has been fantastic yeah the for for from the mental mental side of things the and i've thought about this a lot is that i think to me the reason why it helps me focus more um and helps me you know have to, to think about things differently is that while i'm running there's actually very little that i think about you know i tend to when i go on a long run i do listen to a podcast or some or an audiobook but i find that my mind is actually pretty much 100% focused on me running and on my what my body is doing and i don't think you know about anything else and that seems to be you know, there's a lot of i don't know if you've you've been in um, you've you've ever tried you know all these mindfulness and meditation and everything else but when it, my understanding of mindfulness is that it is make is is making you think about the now, the, the here and now, and not uh, helping. It's helping you not to get your mind to wonder about, you know, what the future might look like and everything else. And I'm getting a bit philosophical here, but uh, to me, running is actually that. When I run, uh, I just think about running and about what my 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 legs are doing, what my arms are doing. Am I, am, you know, am I? Uh, how my posture is? Am I going to hurt myself? Is is there is there a hill that I need to sort of prepare mentally for and anything like that? So it's it is it is very much about me just having focusing my mind on nothing except running, which helps. Really is it is an amazing thing. And like you, I only started. I think it was in. I think I started in two thousand and seven or something. Or no, 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 no. Later, it's probably been. 10 years or so as well. Um, and I found, you know, many people have told me, well, when you start running, it's going to, you're going to hurt yourself, you're going to destroy your knees, you're going to destroy your hips and many different things. I have, well, I have been, I have hurt myself once and I've done that uh, entirely my, uh, by my own fault. But I haven't experienced even my, I'm 47, I've never experienced any of, you know, what people are saying about their knees and hips and never anything like that. Yeah, I, look, I agree with you. For me, running is about enjoying the moment and enjoying what you're doing. And and that is why I enjoy trail running so much more than I enjoy city running or road running. Um, and I, I love to go out on the countryside and spend two, three hours running on, on footpaths and, and places that I've never been and I will probably not be ever again. Um, and, and that's an incredibly therapeutical uh, activity to do for me. And I, and I love it. In terms of hurting myself, I have hurt myself a few times, including falling, falling um, whilst running down a very rocky uh, hill. Um, in Alicante and, and hurting my face. And I think, I think you saw wow. me growing a beard for a couple of months. Yes. Um, yeah. And, and you may remember that's because I fell running 
downhill. I hit my my face, and I I had these two small injuries in my face, which I couldn't shave. Right, That's why yeah. I let my beard grow for a for a couple of months actually. So I have had a few instances where I've hit things or fallen down on 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 the path and on the rocks. But um, those are small inconveniences far um, far outweighed by the benefits of and the enjoyment of running. Absolutely. Uh, listen, Alberto, thank you very much for this. This has been really a pleasure. My pleasure.